As we continue in our study of the seven churches, we have two churches under our belt already. And so let us read and study about the third church that Jesus is writing to. And so we are in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone. And on the stone a new name written, which no no one knows except him who receives it. So, Father, as we come before you once again, Lord, excited to be able to get into your word to be able to read from your word, to be blessed because of your word, Lord God, that we might be able not just to read it and hear it, Lord God, but that we may do the things that are written in your word, Father. And so be with us as a church as we open our ears to hear what you have to say, Lord, and and be with me, Lord, even as I share right now, Lord God. Let your anointing be upon my, my heart, Lord, as I share and upon my mouth in Jesus' name. Amen. So going back to verse 12, as we cover and we start this third church, he says, and to the angel, once again, we see that Jesus has a message for another church. And he sees to it that it is written down this message that is vital for this particular church. And it will get delivered to its intended destination by the messenger. And in this case, it is the church of Pergamos. The church, this church was the furthest north of all the seven churches that we are looking at. Again, if you've gone on the internet or if your Bible has a map, you see that it starts in Ephesus and then Smyrna and then Pergamos is up north. And then we're going to head on south later on in the other churches. It was about 50 miles straight north of Smyrna. As I was looking it up, it it was 65 miles, but, you know, the road kind of goes this way. But it was 50 miles straight north of Smyrna, and it is about 15 miles inland from the Asian Sea. So this was not a port city like we've watched or we've read the last couple of times about Ephesus and Smyrna. This was more inland, but it was a, a very important city. 
Pergamos was the capital, the capital of uh, uh, Roman capital of the province of Asia. Um, now, in, in, in some of your church, in some of your Bibles, before I go on, in some of your Bibles, um, it, it shows up as Perga, um, Perga, Pergamum, but I'm going to say Pergamos because I'm not used to Pergamum because in my Bible it's Pergamos. But be that as it may, I just thought I'd let, throw that out because you're going, which church is he looking at? Because it's different in my Bible. Just so you know, it's Pergamos or Pergamum. But I will go with Pergamos. So anyways, going back to Pergamos, um, it was a Roman capital in the province of Asia. So it was an important city. It was a big city back then, too, because it, it had a population of about 250,000. That's a big city. Even in those days, it, it was big. Today, it is known as Berg, uh, Bergama, Berg, Bergama. And its population as of 2012 is about 100,000. So it's smaller than it was back then, but it's still a good-sized city. Um, and you can see the ruins of this old city of Pergamos um, in, on the Internet. If you just punch in that name, you will see, and go to images, you will see all these different sites. It, it, it was a long city, and so it had so many things going on so many temples as we will see and so back then the city of Pergamos was was known for its culture it was known for its education um, there was an elitism that kind of came along with it it had one of the largest and greatest libraries in the ancient world that had over 200,000 volumes and so it was it was pretty much pretty big and pretty popular and, and it was rivaling the library over in Alexandria uh, in, in Egypt. And Egypt, because, in Alexandria, Egypt area, because this place was so popular and becoming so huge and, and attractive to so many people, Egypt stopped sending them uh, papyri so that they wouldn't make any more books. And so because of that, uh, Pergamos uh, ended up making their own writing material, and, and it was called pergamena, or parchment. And so they came up with their own writing materials because, hey, they were going to continue to build this library and stuff. And again, a lot of education, a lot of culture going on there. The, Berg, the, the, the name Pergamos has two meanings. One is marriage, and the other is elevation. You get the word... Uh, polygamy and monogamy from this name of Pergamos, but also because of where it sat, it, w- it, was, it was elevated. It, it had its heights. And so in regards to church history, this church of Pergamos, it speaks of the time of, of Constantine the Great in A.D. 23 or A.D. 324, I'm going to get this right, up until about the 6th century. That's where where this this church fits in, in in church history. It it went all the way up until the era of the popes when they began. And so it was during that time when the church was elevated to a place of power. And in a sense, it was married to to the government 
It was married to the state. In essence, it was married to the world. Under Constantine and his successors, up until the popes, church and state were united as one. And because of that, the church of Pergamos, not just in church history, but in the time of its writing, it was very engaged with the state. And there was a lot of compromising going on. You see, whenever a church is engaged or in bed with the state, there has to be compromise that goes on. And so this church, the church of Pergamos, was known as the compromising church. Again, not only during church history, but also at the time that this letter was written to this particular church. But then again, we kind of see it today, as I've kind of been sharing with you how these churches that, that are being written to, even though they're local, real, literal churches... We could see them throughout church history, and we could see it even today, and even in our own individual life. So when we're looking at the seven churches, you can say, oh, there's a literal church back then. It, it kind of fits into church history. We could see it even today in, in, in the Christian church, but all these seven churches as well we see in our own lives. And so we need to take heed to all these messages. Because we can see that even today there are some so-called Christian churches that are compromising. That are in bed with governments, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. In certain areas, they, they, they are engaged with the government. And we see that there is compromise even within the Christian church. Those who, who will compromise. But we, we see that in many individuals who call themselves Christians. Those of us who make up the church, there are, there are so many similarities here because it is a compromising church. And so often as individuals, we think it's okay to compromise with the world. As we were looking at last week, that the church of Smyrna was being asked to compromise just a little, a pinch at the altar of, of the government of of the emperor. The church of Pergamos was too tolerant. All inclusive in that sense. It accepted everything that came their way. Even if they knew that this was not from God. All in the name of compromise. Because just like in Smyrna, Pergamos also had emperor worship. And some in the church were going and, and, and offering and compromising the incense because they didn't want to suffer like other churches were suffering, like we looked at last week. Those huge suffering that was going on in, in, in Smyrna because they would not bow down. And Pergamos was different. They didn't want to suffer. Because we don't read anything about suffering really here. Not, not to the extent that we looked at last week. And they had the same kind of opportunity to compromise. I and mean, one church did and the other church didn't. Jesus describes himself as he 
who has the two-edged sword. And it will be that two-edged sword, the word that proceeds out of his mouth, that, 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 that will deal with the church of Pergamos. As he has dealt with church throughout history, and his word is alive and well today, and it deals with us as individuals as well. See, God holds his word above his name. He truly does. He holds his word in high esteem. And so when he, he introduces himself as the one that has the two-edged sword, that is the word of God, he holds it above his name. And because he holds his word above his name and he has given out his word, he will not condone what he has already condemned. And there is no exceptions. And so he does not condone things when we compromise. If he's already condemned it in his word, he doesn't condone it because you're special. <laughs> he doesn't do that. And so in verse 13, he says, I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, to my name, and did not deny my faith, even as in the days which Antipas, my faithful servant, or my faithful martyr, was killed among you where Satan dwells. To every church, he tells them, every church that he addresses, he says, I know your works. I know everything about you. <laughs> because he knows everything and there is nothing hidden from Jesus. Nothing hidden. Jesus knows everything, whether he is in the midst of the church or, or, or as we see at the end of, of the seven churches, he is outside knocking on the door of the church to get in. He still knows it all. Whether he's inside or outside, he knows everything about the church. In contrast with, with Satan, who doesn't know everything. I think we have that misconception that Satan is, is all-knowing. He is not all-knowing. The only way that Satan knows is if he is told or he hears about it. But he does not know everything. He is, he is not on the same level as Jesus Christ, not whatsoever. And we need to get that out of our concept that, that, that Satan knows everything. He doesn't. He only knows what you say and what he has heard. But Jesus is all-knowing. So when Jesus tells the church of Pergamos, I know your works, he does let them know the good things that are going on. And I like that because I think oftentimes we think that God only focuses on the things that are bad. We've all had this, well I know I have, but I think we've all had this mindset that Jesus or that God is just up there with this two by four in his hand just waiting for you to mess up and he hits you with it all the time because we always think, oh when he says he knows, he knows all the things that we do bad. Oh he does know that, but he knows all the things that you are doing and he lets them know that. He lets the church know, hey I know your works. I know where you dwell. I know that Satan, you're, you're in the midst of, of where Satan do, lives, all these, where his throne is at, and I know that some of you hold fast to my name. I know that. 
I know that you, that, that you have not denied the faith. I know those things. I know those, those people who have died in my name. I know those things. But oftentimes when we think that he knows our works, we automatically think the worst. <laughs> Maybe it's our guilty conscience. I don't know. Because we know. It's like, oh. <laughs> but he knows the good things that you end up doing as well. He says, I know where you dwell. And I like that because to me it speaks of how Jesus knows where I live. Not just in the, in, in the physical sense, but he knows everything. He knows the spiritual sense and he knows the physical sense. He knows where I live. He knew that I would end up here in Phelan. <laughs> and that there was a purpose for me to end up in Phelan. He, he, he knows all about my surroundings. He knows where you live. In other words, he knows where you are at. He knows where I am at. He knows right where I'm at and why. And he will let us know when we are not supposed to be where we're, suppo we're not supposed to be. He lets us know those things. He leads us and guides us because he's concerned that much about you and me. That he knows exactly where we live. And in the spiritual sense, he knows where I dwell <laughs> as well. And what dwells in me. In other words, he knows my state of being. He knows where I dwell. He knows what's in my heart, where my heart is at. And he knows where my mind is at. He knows what I allow and what I don't allow. He knows all that. As I was thinking about, even in the spiritual sense, that he knows where I dwell, because at one point in my life, the Holy Spirit did not dwell in my heart. The Bible tells, tells me or tells us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So one can surmise, infer that, that, that he knows where our state is and that before we surrender our hearts to the Lord and make, make him resident in our heart, he knows that we dwell where Satan dwells because we're so obedient to Satan, aren't we, before Christ. He knows that we will do what this world system tells us to do. And so, so he says, I know where you dwell, spiritually and physically. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. So, so is Jesus saying that the city of Pergamos was Satan's dwelling place, as it says at the end of verse 13, where Satan dwells? Because spiritually speaking, the earth is Satan's dwelling place. It tells us that in Ephesians 2.2, that he is the prince of the power of the air. It, it lets us know that he is the ruler of this world. But was Pergamos like his, his capital city? Why, 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 would, why would Jesus say, hey, I know where you dwell, and that is where Satan's throne is. That is where he dwells, in that area. Some, some believe that Pergamos was a stronghold of satanic power because it was the center of, of pagan religion. There was so much going on in the Roman Empire and the city of Pergamos was, was, was entrenched just like the rest of the, the empire, but, but for some reason Pergamos was entrenched in pagan worship. 
the ancient Greek god of medicine and healing, Asclepios, had a big temple there. And it was represented by a serpent wrapped around a pole, which is interesting because that is still used in the medical field today. But that's where it comes from, from this Asclepios god, Greek god. And people came from all over to get relief and find relief from this temple, at this temple. The Roman god Zeus was also worshipped there. And he had a huge throne-like altar set up there. And it was dedicated to him. And this is a big, a big altar. It, well, it, it, it looks like a temple, but it kind of resembles a throne big enough. As a matter of fact, this throne, if you Google it, it, it is right now in, in Germany, in Berlin, Germany, in a museum. They have set it up inside there. It's a big place. But it almost looked like somebody could sit on this temple and it had somewhere where your arms and your back would sit. Others think that it was also the center of ancient Babylonian priesthood, but that's not quite proven. But, but they, they believe all these kinds of things, that, that it was so entrenched in everything And whether that's true or not, the city of Pergamos was into everything that its people wanted to get into. There was no shortage of idols and no shortage of pagan worship. And much of it had to do with perversion. And it almost sounds like the day and age we live in today. Doesn't it? You know, that that the people are just into anything they want to be into. And anything goes. Anything goes. And see, guys, it's nothing new. Just like it was happening back then, it happens today. There's nothing new. This city also was into the worship of the Roman emperor as well, as we saw last week. And, and, And here's what's interesting, that the church, this church, was not a suffering church. Not to the extent of the church of Smyrna. They both had emperor worship going on, but this church is not suffering like the other church. And why is that? Because it was a compromising church. They, they were compromising so that they wouldn't be persecuted. And so because they didn't want to be persecuted, they compromised. A little compromise here, a little compromise there. They were basically married to the church or to the state. And so it did what the state wanted them to do. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And so if if you didn't want to be married to the state, and you didn't want to compromise, it must have been a hard place to be a, a Christian, even like we saw in Smyrna. Because it says that this is where Satan's headquarters was. <laughs> but some of the Christians, they held fast to his name, it says. Some, some, they, 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 they didn't deny the faith. But how is that possible when the rest of the church is compromising? You see, I believe that these who weren't comp- compromising were, were on guard. They knew exactly where they lived. They knew how tough it was. They knew that if they were going to stand up and become a Christian, that they dwelt right where Satan dwelt. 
It's like knowing that you live in Sin City or, you know, that, that, that you live in a place called Sin City and not know that there's sin there. It's like, no, you know exactly. If, if, if it has the nickname of Sin City, it's like, no, I know where I live. I, I, know, I know the debauchery that goes on around me. So because you know that, then you would have a guard up. And I believe that these who, who, who held fast to his name and kept the faith, they knew exactly where they were at. They must have known what Peter had said in 1 Peter 5, 8, where it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so they understood that they kept guard. They understood that, that the devil was out there like a lion because they were in his playground. They lived right where Satan dwells, it says. And even though they knew where they lived in Satan's den, basically, in essence, they knew what John, the apostle, had shared because in, in 1 John 4, 4, where it says, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so they were able to stand firm. They were able to stand strong because they understood their surroundings. And unless we understand our surroundings, we will, be, we will get caught up in all the compromise and all that the world is begging us to do. As, 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 it, as, as it reaches out to our minds to get our attention, to get our heart, mind, and soul. If we do not have our, hand, our, our guard up, then we will, we will compromise. We will, continue, we will do what the world is calling us to do. Unless we realize that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, then we're just going to go with the flow. And these people decided not to go with the flow. They knew that they were able to be protected even in Satan's den, just like Daniel in the lion's den was protected. They understood that. You see, Satan is still alive and well. <laughs> he is, even today. And if anything, he has, he has expanded his operations. He has opened up a branch or set up a branch of, uh, in every country, every city, every town, even the town of Phelan. He has, he has a local branch here because he is still out to destroy the church. He has not eased up not one bit. And there is a war that is being waged against God and against his people. And it's been going on for a long, long time, and it will continue until the church is done here on earth. It, it, it just kind of just seems, though, that it has intensified all the more in the last two, two, three, four decades. It seems like in our lives, man, we're seeing more and more ugliness and more and more evil and more of what's evil called good and what's good called evil. And we're just going like, man, oh man, it's just getting tough. But in reality, guys, it really hasn't changed much. These, these people 2,000 years ago were dealing with, with the things that we are dealing with here. That, that, that Satan is alive and well and wanting to destroy Christians. And that he will use whatever it, he can, even the government, to come against God's people. And they will make rules and laws and, and, and things that will make you compromise. And if you don't, there's a penalty to pay. And it seems that, that, that the fight intensifies, it intensifies when we draw closer to God. Because if you're not drawing closer to God and you're compromising continually in your life, I could guarantee you, you are not in the battle. 
like most people that are trying to draw closer to God. It intensifies when, when we want to go deeper with God. All of a sudden we're going, man, Satan's just out there. It's, it, no, he's always been out there. You're just in the fight a little deeper now. And because you're in the fight a little deeper, because you've taken a stand and you say, I'm not going to be moved by whatever happens in my life, then, then the enemy will intensify the fight because he's going, hey, what the heck, man? You were sleeping for a long time. You were compromising your life. What's changed? <laughs> oh, I'm standing for Christ. I'm not going to be moved anymore. He says, oh, just watch this. And that's when it seems like the fight is being intensified. I believe that we're going through a harder time, even as a country, because as, as much as people are saying, oh man, Christianity is falling down, it's, it's falling by the wayside, I believe it's getting stronger. Oh, oh, many people will compromise, but I believe the true believer is standing stronger, and that's why the fight is coming after us a little harder, and the true church will, will show its true colors eventually. Oh, I, I, I believe a lot of people are compromising even today in the church. And Satan's not really bothering with them. He's coming after those who will take a stand, who will not compromise. Because again, guys, even though we think like, oh man, Satan is so hot and heavy, there's only one of Satan. But he has a lot of little stinking demons running around. There's only one of him. And if he, is, if he is sending his troops over to the United States and just causing us to go through what the rest of the world has been going through for centuries, hey, that means something's going on here, man. <laughs> this fight is intensifying. And me and you get to live in this time right now. To be able to, to, to be a light. Because as, as the darkness gets darker, the light shines brighter and brighter when it gets darker. It does, guys. And I know that some of us, we were just like, I can't believe what's going on. It's like, why can't you believe it? Jesus told us that it would. Jesus said that in the last days, it would become like this. So let us not be surprised. If anything, let us shine brighter as the fight intensifies. It will always, and it has always been intense. <laughs> and it will continue to be intense. And so we need to hold fast to his name and not deny the faith. So are you ready for the fight? <laughs> that is a question. Are you ready for the fight? Will we hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ? Will we stay true to our faith and not deny our faith? Just like those in Pergamos who lived where Satan lived and they held fast and they stayed true. Because he says, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Think about that. What will we do? What will we do when, not if, but when, you have to choose between life and death? Freedom or incarceration? What will you do? If it gets down to that. You see, it's been happening in other countries forever, man. We're watching it more and more on TV, aren't we? See, Christians are being marched out and killed by the dozens. And you know what, what, what I love? Not that I love these things, but you know what I love about that? Is that you don't see none of these guys squirming, man. They're just going for it. They're standing firm, even to death. Even to death. 
Oh, it might hurt for a little while. Being torched is probably not a fun thing. But they are going to stand strong. See, we see that on TV and we see, oh my gosh, that could never happen here. Are you ready for a fight? Are you ready to stand firm? Because I could guarantee you there are so many people, even in this room, who will compromise. Who will compromise. And, 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 and right now, you're probably not in any battle if you're compromising. Be- because you're not getting, Satan's not attacking. It's not intense in your life. <laughs> because you haven't gotten in the fight. You haven't gotten deeper. Antipas was my faithful martyr. The word martyr in the Greek means witness. In other words, Antipas was a faithful witness in what he knew to be true. And he stood faithful unto death because he couldn't testify anything else. (laughs) He knew the truth. And he was going to stand for the truth and he was going to die for the truth. And he did. The word martyr has come to be known one who who is willing to suffer death rather than uh, renounce uh, his his or her faith. But it means witness. And such was the case with this brother Antipas who lived in a place where Satan dwelled and his name, Antipas's name, means against all. And he truly was against all. He was against the flow. He didn't go with the flow. He was against all the world system of the time. And he paid a dear price for it, for being against all. This is something that we are all called to do. To stand for the truth of Jesus Christ and to stand, if need be, against all the world. Like that old song says, though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none follow me, I will continue to follow. That we may be an Antipas. (laughs) Not much is known about this faithful martyr, as Jesus calls him. But tradition tells us that He was seared alive inside a hollow brass statue in the form of a bull and they heated it until it was glowing white. And so Antipas paid with his life. I mean, he, he, he might not be a household name even among Christian circles, much less the world, yet Jesus takes notice of him. He knows who he is. He knew where he dwelt. He knew all about him. He is one of those heroes that will be up in heaven. Pergamos is known, once again, as the church that compromised because it allowed certain things to come in and they didn't stand firm, but some did, and they were willing to die for it. And I believe that in in the days that we are in, the true church will show its true colors eventually. We need to stand stand strong and stand firm. In verses 14 through 15, where he says, But I have a few things against you, because you have those there, those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block 
before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus also you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. We, we, we've, we've looked at Balaam a couple of times in the past. But here Jesus says, hey, I, got, I have a few things against you. You see, Jesus is not shy about telling us what's up, good or bad. He's not shy about telling us, not because he doesn't love us, but because he loves us that much. It wasn't as if the church of Pergamos didn't know what was going on. This, this wasn't the first time that they were being made aware of, of, of what was happening, of the doctrine of Balaam and, and the Nicolaitans. They, they, they were like the church in Corinth. They knew that there was sexual immorality going on and they hadn't dealt with it. And Paul says, I will deal with it when I get there. If you're not going to deal with it, I will deal with it when it gets there, when I get there. You see, the, the Corinthian church knew what was going on. They knew that it was wrong. That word hold that we have in verse 14, that they hold to the doctrine of Balaam, and in verse 15, that they hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. That word means to use strength i.e. to seize or retain. It wasn't something that they fell into. It's like, oh, all of a sudden they got caught up in sexual immorality and things offered to idols and things. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, we stumbled into this. How do I get out of it? No, they had, they had went headlong into it. They laid hold of it. They understood it. They knew, they knew that it was against the teachings of God, of, of God's word and against the church. And the church of Pergamos knew about it and were allowing it to continue. And Jesus tells them enough is enough. Deal with it now. So again, in the New Testament, we see the way of Balaam in 2 Peter 2.15. In Jude 11, we saw the error of Balaam. And here we have the doctrine of Balaam. And what is the doctrine of Balaam or the teaching of Balaam? Balaam was the prophet of God, and you can read about him in Numbers 22 to 25. And he was, a, he was hired by King Balak to come and curse the children of Israel. Here's the prophet of God being hired to curse the people that he is supposed to represent. But you see, he kind of sold himself whenever he could. And so when he tried to curse them, nothing but blessings came out of his mouth. And so when he couldn't do it, he tells Balak, well, this is how you're going to get to them. And he tells them, hey, why don't you send your young women? These guys were from Moab. Send your young women. Because these Jewish guys, these, 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 the children of Israel, they love your women. They love women. So send them in there and let them seduce them into sexual immorality and they will be drawn away from God. And they will begin to bow down to the false gods. And Balaam knew that. And he knew that God would not put up with it. And in Numbers 25, 1 through 3, it says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined with Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. You see, Balaam knew, well, if I can't curse them, if I can't bring a curse upon them, I'll tell you how to get to them. 
And that was the doctrine of Balaam. This church was now teaching all this sexual immorality and allowing it to happen. This type of, of compromise goes back to those days and even today. And some Christians and some churches see nothing wrong with it. The sexual immorality. You see, you can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe, where, where it says, these are the things of the flesh. And he talks about adultery. He talks about fornication. He talks about homosexuality. He talks about all these kinds of things that, 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 that the flesh desires and wants. He says, but such were some of you, because we've all been there in, that, in one way or another. You see, our flesh wants to compromise all the time. It doesn't matter who you are. You, you, can be, you can be tempted to compromise. And if a church is saying, well, it's okay. You're the exception to the rule. Guess what the people are going to do? They're going to compromise. The doctrine or teaching of the Nicolaitans was very similar, was similar to Balaam's doctrine they all approve sexual immorality. And yet the Nicolaitans, though, they, they, they seem to put themselves in a more superior spiritual place than others. The name Nicolaitan means conqueror of the people, which is interesting because Balaam's name is Lord of the people. And they both did that. And I know that today, even today, we think like, oh, the Bible is so old-fashioned. Why, why should we have to stay away from sexual, any kind of sexual immorality? The Bible is so old-fashioned, it's not old-fashioned. It was happening back then, and God still hated it. He still preached against it. His word still said, it's not good, I, I condemn it. And so God will never condone what He's already condemned in the past. It doesn't matter which age you lived in, because these people were battling these same issues that we battle today, the battle that's going on even today in the church. And it's not just the young kids who are getting into sexual immorality. It's people of all ages. They want to satisfy their flesh. <laughs> and they think that it's okay. And some people say, well, I'm not going outside. I'm just watching it. It's like, it's just as bad. You're compromising a little. You're continuing to compromise. And it's not just the men, it's the women as well. It's happening all over the place, guys. This is not happening in this vacuum. It's happened throughout history. And it will continue to happen unless we, we hold fast to, 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 to the doctrine of what God teaches us. But if you want to compromise, then, then God will deal with you just like He's, he, he's, he's dealing with, with the, the, the church in Pergamos because He says in verse 16, He says, Repent, or else I will come against you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And repentance is not a suggestion, it is a command here. If they, those who are not holding fast, and those who are teaching this false doctrine, if they do not repent, then he will come against them and he will fight against them. Understand that. That judgment will begin in the house of God. God, Jesus, again, he says, I will fight against them. 
And I think oftentimes people are going through things in their life and they're going, why is these things happening? And it's like, well, could it be that you're, you're allowing something in your life that he has condemned already and he is fighting against you on this? You see, we don't want to hear that. It's not, no, but Jesus is all about love. No, he also chastises the church. And if you are allowing things to happen and you're compromising little by little, then he will fight against you. He, he will. He's not afraid to fight against you, not because he hates you, because he wants to draw you back to a place where you're going to stand firm and quit compromising in your life. He's not afraid to fight against his own people if he has to. He's been doing it forever. Unless, unless you repent. Jesus does not bear the sword of his mouth in vain. His word is true. And he holds it above his name. And if he has said, I condemn this, then he's not going to change it and make exceptions for you and I. He won't. He just won't. There's judgment to come, and there's consequences that come with that judgment. You see, Rome wielded a big sword, a strong sword, and they were not afraid to use it to those who dissented. And some Christians feared the sword of Rome, the sword of this world they fear, more than they fear the sword, the two-edged sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. They fear what people will say if they don't compromise. Instead of fearing God. So in verse 17 he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Pay attention, he says. Let him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, I will give of the hidden, some, him, hid, some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written on which no, uh, no one knows except him who has received it. You see, Jesus wants to give us special blessings. I, th I think oftentimes we compromise in our lives because we want to satisfy our soul, want to satisfy our flesh. And Jesus is saying, hey, I have some hidden manna that will satisfy your soul. It is, it, it, it is His Word that will satisfy your soul. It is our daily bread. It will sustain you. It will carry you. It will teach you how to stand. The Word of God will. It truly will. He says, I have this hidden manna, and if you go for it, I will satisfy you. You don't have to go anywhere else. You don't have to go anywhere else. He will satisfy and He will sustain because His Word cuts to our heart just like butter. <laughs> it will cut to the heart. The white stone signifies approval with Him. And on this stone is a new name. You want to know what the new name is? We don't know because it tells us no one knows except whom, who receives it, and it will be probably at the end. But it does speak of intimacy. You see, these people were looking for intimacy and sexual immorality. They were looking for all this other stuff, and he says, hey, I have something special for you. 
And it will be intimate. It will be just between me and you. Nobody else is going to know this new name. And so, again, he has this hidden manna, which is his word. And he has this white stone with your name on it. Stay true. Stand strong. Don't be moved. Come to Jesus this morning if you haven't come to him already. Because you've lived a life of compromised all your life, man. Today he's calling you out. And if you're a believer, a brother or sister who is compromising, and you know that, we might know, not know that, but you know that. My encouragement to you is repent. Guys, repent is not a bad word. It's a good word. He gives us that opportunity to repent. What a gift that God has given us. Repentance. Amen? Amen. So let us repent. We'll have prayer teams up here if you need to repent for anything. But even if you're going through whatever, come and get prayer. Don't leave here without it. Um, let's stand as we close in prayer. And the worship team will come up. And as the, the song is going on, if you need Jesus in your life, again, Talk to me out there. Talk to one of the elders. Um, they will pray with you. The, the prayer teams that will be up here, they will lead you to Jesus as well. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your faithfulness, Lord God, that you are true. That you do not bear the sword of your word in vain. It is true. And Lord, you have given us your word so that it can sustain us, it can carry us, it can keep us, Lord, even in the midst of of, en of enemy territory that Lord we would be strong and we thank you and I pray that if there's any this morning who truly needs to repent that they would repent right now that they would not allow the enemy to lie to them anymore and that they would come to you Lord and escape the judgment that is set for them if they do not repent and so Jesus we thank you for being straight up with us Lord in your word and I pray that God, you would go before us. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.